So you ever wonder what kind of people get into MIT? Or what they do after they graduate? Welcome to this week's episode of Unlimited, also known as Bila Hudud. We're brought to you by the MIT Arab Alumni Association. Here we talk about the different paths Arab students took to get to MIT while they were students and after graduation. What we hope to uncover is that these paths, quite like the people who took them, are unlimited. I'm your host, Dana Dabusi, class of 2020, and thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Unlimited. Hello, Sahla, and welcome to this week's episode of Unlimited. We are wrapping up the Meet the Board series over the next couple of weeks and introducing the Pi series for the month of March. Uh, for those who don't know, Pi Day is March 14th, 3.14, and it's the day that students who applied to MIT hear back on their final decision. So if you are a student thinking of applying to MIT, uh, thinking of going to MIT, and you're receiving your acceptance in, in March, then this series is for you. We will be introducing the stories of current students and recent graduates, uh, so you can see what it's like to be a student at MIT right now, through COVID and right before. So tune in and hear all about it. This week, we have the privilege of getting to talk to a close friend of mine and our Director of Campus Engagement, Noor Ghadanfar, MIT Masters of City Planning, Class of 2019, is an urban planner working at Asakura Robinson in Houston, Texas. So without further ado, here's Noor. Welcome to the episode, Noor. Thank you, Dana, for having me. <laughs> so Noor, uh, you are in our Meet the Board series, so we'd like to get to know a little bit more about your role in the board, what you hope to see in the next few years, and what you're excited about. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so Director of Campus Engagement, um, it's p- pretty clear from the name. Uh, I work to, you know, maintain the relations between the Arab Alumni Association and, you know, a lot of things that are happening on campus. And so whether that's making sure that we still have a link with the student, the Arab student organization there, whether it's reaching out to our Arab faculty and staff and letting them know that we exist and we are happy to help or be of aid in any way that we can, Um, whether it's also getting involved on a more uh, program or initiative-based level. For example, we've had a lot of conversations with MISTI about expanding the program, expanding the countries of the program. Um, And for those who don't know, MISTI is MIT's international internship program where students are able to go to different countries and uh, gain working experience there. So, Noor, uh, you are recently developing a program called CAMP as well. This existed in the past and, you know, it's, uh, do you want to talk about it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So CAMP, what it is, is essentially a mentorship program. And it, it gets a lot of MIT students to help to go back to the region, to the Middle East and North Africa, and help students who are currently in high school apply to U.S. colleges more broadly, but also to MIT specifically. And so we'll kind of give them the background on, you know, what courses they should be taking, um, if there are any tests like the TOEFL or the SAT that they should be focusing on, you know, what 
the process of writing your essay is like. And we really try to focus on more underprivileged schools in the region because those are the schools that could really use the help. Um, so we develop you know, a program, a presentation, and then once we present to all these schools and students, we maintain a line of connection to help students if they have any questions, when applications are coming up. And so we're really excited. Um, previously, the program used to be, you know, in person, we would pay for MIT students to fly back to different countries and give this presentation. But because of COVID, and I also think this is the exciting thing, this year it's going to be virtual. And so we're going to be presenting these webinars specifically country-based. So let's say in Morocco, we're going to have a webinar for the Moroccan school system, because that's very different than the Lebanese or the Syrian school system, which is also different than the Egyptian school system. And so we're going to have these country-focused webinars that students are able to access. We're going to make everything accessible online. And fingers crossed, I want to be doing them in Arabic as well, um, at least for a portion of them, since a lot of students um, are more comfortable with Arabic. Um, and so we're going to, yeah, put these presentations up and hopefully help get a lot more kids from the region um, coming to the U.S., uh, studying, learning, and hopefully going back and, and building on the countries that they grew up in. And I think this is a great way for us to also introduce something we're planning to do with Unlimited, um, which will also feature recent students um, who just graduated or are still in school um, to try to help students who are thinking about, you know, applying to MIT or if they already got into MIT and are um, deciding between schools. Uh, and, you know, it'll be launched around Pi Day. So hopefully uh, this is something that we're going to be working on collaboratively um, to help prospective students to join us. Now, I, I want to take it back to you, Noor, um, and, you know, about your story. You went to school in Kuwait and then did your undergrad um, in McGill. So what was it like coming from Kuwait and studying abroad? I think uh, that's something we'd love to hear about. Yeah, so I think the biggest difference for me was just going from an entire grade size of 84 students to having one class size of 625 students in my first year as a freshman. <laughs> Um, McGill as an institution, I believe, has over 20,000 undergrads. And so just wow. the sheer size of it uh, was the biggest, the biggest difference, I think, for me. You are a sea of, you are one smart student in a sea of smart students. And so I think also for a lot of people, the whole special factor, you know, that you think, you know, I'm, I'm smart, I'm uh, um, I'm aspirational. Um, I'm going to the West to study. There are so many students like that. So it's, uh, it becomes more humbling, I think. Um, and, and another thing I, I also want to bring up is when you live abroad, especially when you're surrounded by, let's say, people of many different cultures, because you can go abroad and just hang out with Arabs and just hang out with Muslims and, you know, it's it's very it's a very similar cultural thing but when you expose yourself to a lot of different people you begin to understand yourself better you begin to question you know what are my own personal beliefs what are things that i i just thought because everybody else was thinking and so that's also mm -hmm. 
a really great way to understand your own self as a person and something that I really appreciated and felt like I was extremely privileged to be able to do because not a lot of people where we come from are able to do that. So I feel definitely definitely very lucky. Yeah. Definitely. And I think you might end up with the same beliefs coming out, but you kind of have this firmer understanding and, you know, it's more tied to your identity because it's not the norm. Yeah, it's amazing. Right. So I wanted to talk a little bit about the influences maybe that your uh, upbringing, your background being Syrian, uh, kind of had on your time and and what you studied in in university and then also later uh, in your master's degree? Yeah, that's a great question. I know a lot of people who grew up with Arab parents expect parents to be like, you should be a lawyer, you should be a doctor, you should be an engineer. But I was not one of those people. My parents encouraged me to pursue something that I loved. Um, They didn't really dictate what I could and could not study which was great, but at the same time, I kind of went to university knowing what I didn't want to do, but not having a career (laughs) path of like what I wanted to understand or what I wanted to study. And so it was more uh, just, you know, shopping for classes, especially McGill. And I took a class with a professor called John Hall, classical sociology, and I fell in love with that class. And it it speaks volumes about... um, a professor, a teacher's ability to make you love a subject. And uh, so I decided I'm going to major in sociology and I added a little bit of international development just because I was always passionate about, you know, politics and international affairs. And that's that's what I essentially love to do. And I went back to Kuwait for three years where I worked in something completely unrelated. I worked with PricewaterhouseCoopers in internal audits, which is, um, which is essentially... You're looking at processes, you're looking at systems, and you're trying to find the gap. And so um, whether that's a policy that's not in place, whether that's the addition of an extra pair of eyes on a specific document to make sure that, you know, no mistakes are had. I did that for three years, something very strange, but something I absolutely loved as well. Um, Didn't find myself feeling like this was sustainable for 10, 20 years. And so I really asked myself, what do I want to do? What would make me happy? And and during that entire time, I mean, my first year in undergrad was when the Arab Spring happened. And uh, slowly after the Egyptian revolution, the Syrian uh, revolution, the Syrian civil war began. And so for me, I knew I really wanted to work on an, on issues that would be pertinent to what was happening in Syria. So I said, I think I'm going to study urban planning and work on how I initially when I when I went to MIT, my idea was to work or to study how refugees moved, how they settled, how cities were planned uh, for refugees. And and that's what inspired me to go into urban planning. And that's what I studied at MIT. Great. And it's we're so lucky that you did come to MIT um, because we were both there at the same time. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so some of the things that you were doing at MIT, could you tell us a little bit about maybe your favorite classes and your favorite activities? Um, maybe the ASO is one. Yeah. Um, you know, classes at MIT were great, but what I really liked 
the most worthy activities. And so specifically um, working with you on SciTech, which is now the MIT Arab Conference, we were the first team to kind of turn it from an award ceremony into a fully fledged uh, conference. And just that whole experience was amazing, you know, just understanding um, logistics, uh, how you were you plan such a large conference in an institution like MIT. What does that mean? Who do you have access to? How do you call on speakers to come? Um, so that was an incredible experience. And, and we did that for two years. And um, I, you learn so much every year. And it's, uh, it's really, it was really amazing. I, you definitely learn new skills, but we were so lucky to have you and your skills that you picked up at PwC um, <laughs> with the logistics and um, all your organizational skills really, really came through. So um, I think we we couldn't have done it without you, but it was definitely um, an experience that really made our time at MIT. Oh so my gosh, yeah. I, I'm really grateful for it. That organization <laughs> is something I will take with me to my grave. I learned so much. I, I will, when we when we go on, go on trips now, I will plan daily itineraries. Like, okay, today we're going to be doing this. And today we're going to be doing this, like step-by-step. Step, we're going to have lunch, <laughs> so we're going to have dinner. And <laughs> so it's almost extreme to some points, but I, I love like being organized, knowing what pack knowing where I'm supposed to be at what time uh, no so so it was really great and I think that specifically you know we all know the 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 amazing number of people that exist in the Middle East and North Africa but working on a conference like SciTech it really shows you that there are things happening there that you would not in any capacity expect to see like uh, I can't remember the name of the company, but we had a speaker come and talk about how he was sending satellites into space from Jordan. And right. you you were like, this is happening in Jordan or this is happening in Egypt or this is happening in Tunis. And um, you're so you're surprised and the game gives you uh, a lot of pride, you know, to like be proud that you're Arab and that you come from a place that's beyond all else resilient but also so innovative and so um, forward thinking despite, you know, all odds. Definitely. And I think being able to create a platform to allow people to share their amazing achievements was an excellent experience. And I think I also was really, you know, speaking from the student perspective and working on a team, uh, with other Arab students who, you know, surpassed my expectations of what they were capable of and um, how, you know, we were able to put together a, a, con- a full itinerary of a conference with 30 speakers in under four months, you know. So yeah. I think I learned a lot from you, from your organization, from uh, Rada and her creativity yeah. and uh and everyone on that team really put in their all. Um, and, and that, I think, reflects really well on, you know, being an MIT student, uh, being among other MIT students and, you know, just very ambitious, uh, dedicated and, and technically strong students. So it was great being able to work alongside everyone. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was amazing. <laughs> <laughs> 
Now, you recently graduated um, and have entered the workforce in the U.S., which is a, a great step in your career and a great step for a person who, you know, just graduated. What made you decide to, you know, relocate out of Kuwait and, and stay in the U.S. and actually relocate to Houston, Texas? Yeah, that's a good question. If you were to ever ask me, you know, I think how many times have I said the word Houston, Texas before I moved here? It would probably be like twice in passing. You know, I never even thought I would ever move to a place like Houston. But uh, my husband, uh, who at the time uh, we were still engaged while I was in in MIT, he was living and working here and he had the job and I didn't. And so that trumps who moves where. So I ended up moving to Houston with below low expectations. <laughs> um, I didn't expect to love it. I expected to, you know, especially when you're living in the Northeast, there's almost the sense of like, we're better than the rest of the U.S. And I, I don't I don't say this to be condescending, but, you know, especially Cambridge, you have all these fabulous educational institutions. You have this innovation cluster. You have biopharma. And they're doing really cool things. But when I came down to Texas, um, things slowed down a lot in a good way. People were friendlier. People were willing to introduce you to... Um, to all their connections and help you out. Um, cost of living is cheaper. Food tastes better. Uh, Houston is actually the second most diverse city in wow. the U.S. And the third, soon to be the third largest. Wow. And so you can imagine that just from that alone, the amount of people here who come from all over the world, primarily, of course, there's an oil and gas industry that's really heavy here, a really large energy and chemicals industry. But there's also a really large healthcare industry. Um, and so for Houston to be one of the fastest growing cities, and I'm an urban planner, I'm a city planner, <laughs> it's a perfect place to be. There's, yeah, exactly. And so that, you know, transportation is changing so much. We're investing in bike lanes, we're investing in bus rapid transit, we're investing in wider sidewalks. Um, the way we think about affordable housing is changing. The way we think about uh, flood, you know, flood prone areas and solutions to flooding and uh, solutions to drainage infrastructure is, is honestly incredible. And um, I don't think that I would have had the opportunities to work on projects such as this in my role uh, as a city planner if I were in Boston. Because Houston is very different. Um, especially with COVID, I would like to say that I appreciate, you know, being in a place that has more space. Um, ideally, I, I, I do love density, but I think especially with COVID, uh, being able to go outside and not feeling super claustrophobic has been uh, a positive of moving to Texas. I love Texas. I would never have thought I would ever say that, but I, I really do love Texas. That's great. <laughs> but as it compares to yeah. potentially a job, if you were to get a job like that in the Middle East, do you think that job exists? Um, would you have moved directly back to the Middle East if you knew a similar job existed? That's a great question. And I think there are a lot of different factors to consider here. I think specific countries... Um, let's say, let's talk about the Gulf. So Kuwait, uh, the Emirates, Saudi, Qatar, Bahrain, Oman, I think they're doing a lot in terms of city planning. But I also think that 
a lot of the planning is still very top down. And so, you know, the government has an idea, people at different departments have an idea and they kind of implement it. Whereas here, we really try to integrate a lot of community engagement to everything that we do. Um, the community is the largest stakeholder um, mm. that we work with. And so we're always issuing surveys, getting out, talking to people, uh, trying to get an idea of whether something could have, let's say, unintended negative consequences. Whether, you know, a lot of times, especially from an urban planning realm, you think like having more bike lanes is amazing. And, and a lot of times it is, but for some specific communities that don't bike, let's say if you're aging in place, um, a lot of older, more senior members of the community, they're not going right. to bike. So if you're going to have a, a, a bike path, you know, <laughs> going through, through their community, it's not going to be used. And so that's what I love here. And that's what I hopefully want to in the future implement. The way we plan here is different. And that's what I want to do there. Um, and the other thing is, I think that the U.S. is good at allowing innovation to happen at a faster pace than the Middle East and North Africa. I think there's a lot of bureaucracy that gets that holds things down. And so you aren't able to happen, have it happen as fast. And sometimes when something does happen, you're like, okay, this worked. Let's just keep doing this for the next 10 years because we know that it worked. So this is something that I think is unfortunately out of our control and hopefully is slowly changing. Um, but that's why I think the way I'm I'm able to work here has benefited me in, in the sense that it's more rapid. You're innovating at a faster pace. You're learning at a faster pace. Um, so it's been it's been great from that sense. That's great. I'm really glad that you're enjoying your time in Houston. I think that's great. And you found a city that you like uh, and a job that you like. So uh, I'd love to hear a little bit more about what you're working on, uh, the company, what it's like, and, and maybe the culture as well. Yeah, absolutely. So um, Asakura Robinson is the company I work for. It's a landscape architecture, urban design planning firm. And, you know, we do a lot of projects all over the U.S. And so these projects could be mobility studies that are looking at, you know, how to make places more accessible, healthy parks plans that are, are, are looking to make parks a more equitable space that, you know, uh, people of all different backgrounds can enjoy. Uh, we're looking at a nine-county economic development study in the south of Texas and trying to keep them resilient to shocks like hurricanes or even like COVID. And so I work on a broad array of projects that change every time and each project is different and our findings are different. And so that's what I love about what I do. Um, and the culture here really promotes, you know, um, going after innovative solutions, talking to a number of different people um, using data in fresh and new ways and using maps in fresh and new ways. And uh, that's something I, I absolutely love. Um, the company is also, you know, it's quite small. It's less than 45 full-time employees. And so uh, as, as someone who's, who, who works there, you get to do so much from marketing um, to uh, more administrative tasks to organizing, you know, company-wide events, to project management. Um, and so I've really, really, really enjoyed my time here. I think it's a great place and a great learning experience. Right. And Noor, you sound like you love your job. And I think that is always reflected in, in good work. Uh, I noticed earlier um, that you, on your LinkedIn, actually, 
that you got a new promotion at your job, Mabruk. Uh, Thank you. And you haven't been working there for very long. So I'm wondering if you have any advice for people who are just getting started with their careers. You know, how do you make that jump and, and, you know, get promotions and uh, move up in your career at, at such a speed? Yeah, thanks so much, um, Dana. Well, I feel like there there are three different factors I want to talk here. The first factor is I think, or in every whenever you're trying to move up in a company, you always have to have superiors who appreciate you, recognize that you have the ability to move forward. If that's right. not present, then you you're that's never going to happen. So luckily, you know, um, the people I work for, the superiors, the leadership in the firm they always push and encourage growth of their employees. And so that's like one of my my luckiest aspects. The second thing is, I think um, that as women, a lot of the time we might not feel ready uh, to you know, ask for a promotion or to move into a new position because we don't have all the necessary skills that we need to, to succeed in a specific position. And a lot of times men don't have that you know, preconceived notion and they just go for it. And I think definitely, you know, leaning in and just taking every opportunity you can, uh, understanding, you know, being being humble, being aware of all these things, but no one's going to hand you anything. And so, you know, making sure you're constantly working and, and towards a specific goal, I think right. that's great. Um, and the third thing is, you know, I started work in November 2019. In March 2020, the COVID pandemic happened and we were in lockdown. And so... My options of what to do with my day were so much more limited. I could <laughs> sleep or watch TV or read or I could work and uh, work took a lot of time. So definitely putting in the, the extra hours helped there. <laughs> and not by choice, but by circumstance, but it worked out. Well, I'm, I'm glad that things worked out. And like the old uh, saying goes, you miss all the shots you don't take. So uh, I'm glad that you put yourself out there and went for it and, and it turned out in your in your favor. So congratulations. Thank you. So, uh, Noor, I think this brings us to the closing of our episode, but we wanted to take a little time for some nostalgia <laughs> and being the MIT alumni podcast, we wanted to hear from you. What is one thing that you miss about MIT? Um, I miss the serendipitous encounters that happen on campus where you're working on some something super specific and you meet someone who has a PhD in that and you're able to have a conversation <laughs> about, let's say, you know, so the Soviet Union's uh, trade policy. Um, so, yeah, wow. I think... Very yeah, specific. I'm just trying to think of something extremely random. There's also an old yeah. map of China that includes the USSR on it in my office. That's what came to my head. But yeah, I, I, I definitely miss that. Um, the people, the concentration of people there is unlike anywhere else in the world. And that's why everybody wants to go to MIT, frankly. I yeah, think. and you learn from everyone you meet. Uh -huh. I don't think there's any encounter I've had that didn't end up in, in me learning something new. So I, I definitely missed that as well. <laughs> well, it's it's been great having you on the show, Noor. I'm excited to see where your career goes. If you'll go back to the uh, Middle East anytime in the future, 
um, and all the lessons that you can bring back to the region and, and help us grow. So thank you. Oh yeah, I, I definitely want to. I think I think the one thing I've learned from my very, very, very short 28 years is you'll never know what opportunities around the corner. You think you're going to be in one place and all of a sudden you're in somewhere completely different. Right. And that's something I absolutely think is amazing and wonderful. And um, I, I, I love the ability to, and, the, and feel so privileged to be able to, to, have, to have that sort of life. So I hope to be in the Middle East really soon um, or in North Africa really soon. I really miss speaking Arabic on a daily basis. <laughs> That's the biggest thing I miss. Right. <laughs> I miss into, I, I'm constantly frustrated that when I introduce myself here, I don't say Noor Ghadanfar, I say Noor Ghadanfar. Oh no. And, like these small <laughs> things, you know, like, oh. Um, but hopefully sometime soon. That was Noor Ghadanfar, our Director of Campus Engagement and an urban planner at Asakora Robinson, based in Houston, Texas. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Unlimited. Uh, huge shout out to the podcast team, Arin Omar and Ma'moon. Thanks for tuning in and we'll see you next week.